Good morning, WFR. Good morning. We are so, so glad y'all have decided to worship with us. Everybody that is tuned in online, welcome. I don't know if you can see from the back, but I, for the last four years, I have had a beard that I have shaved off. I don't know if you can see from the back. My wife had a friend over, and this friend sees a picture of me right after my wife and I were married on our honeymoon. And this just friend kind of casually says, man, that guy looks like Channing Tatum. And I was like, finally, somebody that's got 20-20 vision comes to my house. And my wife's kind of, she's like, well, yeah, Trent looked like uh, Channing Tatum. I said, looked, excuse me, excuse me, looked is in the past tense. So I'm 30 years old. At 30 years old, the fight has begun. I want to testify, give you a testimony. The struggle is real. I'm trying to keep pace with the younger version of me, and it started this week. So this is where I'm, this is my vanity here. All right, that's, who, who, nobody, no, you guys aren't interested in any of that. We are continuing our sermon series on the blessed life, and I'm, 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 I've been hit where it hurts talking about this series right in my wallet. This is about giving. This is about tithing. And there, there are those who would say in theology that the number one competition for your heart in terms of what your heart worships, either God or some other thing, is money. Money is, the num is your heart's number one competitor for God's position in your life. And so we're going to talk about generosity a little bit. First, I'm going to talk about the enemy of generosity. There are two things in Scripture that I see as being the enemy of generosity. The first is the spirit of mammon. The spirit of mammon. So if you would, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. I'm going to read to you here. This is red letter edition. Now the Bible says this. These are the words of Jesus. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He's admonishing a group of people. And he says this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, a couple of books in the Bible later, we have the Gospel of Luke, the physician. I'm in Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 9. The Bible says this in Luke 16, 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth or unrighteous mammon to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Okay, in, in Matthew 6 and 24, the very end there, you cannot serve both God and money. The word there kind of transliterated is mammon. That's what the NIV interprets as money. Again, in Luke 16, verse 9, use worldly wealth is the same word transliterated as mammon. What is mammon? Mammon's a word that represents the love or worship of money. Some theologians and scholars say this was a Syrian god that was worshipped, indicating a love or devotion to worldly riches. And in our culture today, there is still a following after 
worldly riches. And the main reason that that's true is because money promises what only God can give. Money imitates God. So think about this. When a a problem comes up in life, often in our lives we think one of two different thoughts when we are faced with a problem. Either I need more God in my life, and it's my prayer for you that that would be your response in a time where it feels like a moment of truth has arrived and you're in need. My, my hope is that at that moment, you're a person who would say, I need more God. But you know what another really common response is when we find ourselves in a place of need or powerlessness? I need more money. If I just had more money. Why? Because money imitates God. What does money offer us? Money offers us security. If I have enough money, I feel secure. I track my balance in my bank account weekly because it makes me feel secure. What else does money do? It makes us feel powerful. I can buy. I can go where I want to. I can do what I want to do all because I have money. It gives me influence, I would like to think. The size of my checking account, where I live, what I drive, the type of clothes I wear, where I go out to eat, all those things, I think, give me influence. I'm sad to say, but I think there are a lot of us under the sound of my voice where money makes us feel more at peace. Money makes us feel more at peace. In April, when the tax return check comes in, do we rest easier with our heads on the pillow at night? I think lots of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, say, Trent, you know what? Yeah, yeah. And I think, all, I think those of us that don't feel a peace at that, unfortunately... It's because the money is already spent. I'm already so controlled by, by money when it comes in that I've got to calculate where it goes to try and manage my stuff. Money also can make some of us feel loved, unfortunately. You give me money, you get me things, I have money. I feel like that's the pathway to love. What does Jesus say here in Matthew 6? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot do it. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. When Trent, or anyone under the sound of my voice, goes about seeking security, power, influence, safety, peace, or love through money, I'm telling you, church, and you've experienced this in your own life, money never, ever delivers. It never delivers. But if I've served money, the spirit of mammon, if I have acted as though it is money, if I've loved money thinking that money is going to give me power, influence, peace, love, or security, and it doesn't deliver, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? Who does it say, Jesus, who does Jesus say, I'm going to blame? As a rule, I'm not going to blame God. I'm, I'm not going to blame money. I'm going to blame God. So here I've gone after worldly gain, seeking things in this life. I've thought money is going to make me feel secure, and it doesn't. And I'm sitting in church, and I'm thinking, God, you don't make me feel secure. And I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, man. But that's not God's problem if you're the one who is serving and loving and following after money. Because you've bought into the promises that the enemy wants you to buy into, that money can give you what really only God can give you. What else does money do? Money influences through fear. La- uh, last year, or, yeah, last year, we started the year off with a, a, a sermon series in the book of Revelation. Awesome study. In Revelation 13, there, there is a, 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 a revelation that John records of two beasts 
And the beast that I'm going to be talking about here for just a moment is the beast kind of of the earth. Now, for us, and the way I read that, it is godless government. I'm thinking John's writing to a set of churches at that particular time about something going on that is relevant to them. And he says there's a beast that came that's of the earth. There's one that came out of the sea, reference in 13. There's a beast of the earth. And let me catch you, Revelation 13, okay? I'm going to start reading to you in verse 16. The Bible says this, This beast, I'm talking about a godless government here from Revelation 13, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. Now, why in the world would God's people align themselves with godless government? Why, why would that happen? Those of us who are reading this on, on this side of the writing are thinking, no way, man, I will take my stand. You show me that government, I'll show you my concealed carry. Right? That's what we say in Louisiana. Everybody packs down here. Okay? But I'll tell you why we would be tempted to align ourselves with that particular entity. Check verse 17. I'm going to read 16 again. It also forced people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Money controls through fear. Money controls through fear. That's the same reason anti-Jesus, anti-God governments and religions operate. That's the same spiritual operation there. So what the enemy is going to do to you, church family, is get you really concerned and fearful and worried about your finances. And so God places it on your heart to get obedient and to give. And that fear, our adversary, the enemy, says, oh man, you got that, your kid's college tuition payment is due, you got the vehicle payment coming up. You're not going to get your tax return back till April. I don't know about giving to, giving to that ministry or your local church or that missionary or, or whatever it might be. Why, why would you even entertain that voice for one second? The same reason it would be hard for me not to entertain that voice for one second. Because I'm fearful. But I want to tell you, friend, God loves you more than, than you love the most precious thing that you have in your life here on this earth. And he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And he's got plans to prosper you, to bring you a hope-filled future. And when the accuser, our enemy, comes at you and says, God's not going to take care of you, you rebuke that voice and say, get behind me, Satan. I am going to be obedient, and I'm going to press forward. And I'm not going to live in a spirit of fear, but I am going to live in the spirit of power And of sound mind that God's spirit, the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead, lives in me, is going to give me to do what I need to do. And I know God's blessing is going to result. That's the way we have to live as men and women who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. So what what, what is money then? Is money good or evil? Really, it's neither. 1 Timothy 6.10, the Bible says this, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. Money is not what is evil here. It's the love thereof. That's the spirit of mammon. The following after, I would say, even to take it a step farther, the worship of money. What in the world should you do with money? You should be generous. 
I'm going to give you an example of selfishness, which is another enemy of generosity from John chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. An enemy of generosity is the spirit of mammon, loving and serving and following after money. Another enemy of generosity is selfishness. John 12, starting in verse 1. The Bible says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I think the glaring, most obvious example of selfishness in Scripture is, is the life of Judas. And the first thing demonstrated here in, in the life of Judas is that his selfishness elevates himself. That's the first thing selfishness does. It elevates self. Now what exactly was Judas doing? By reading the commentary in Scripture, we see that Judas was holder of the bag of money. Jesus was in traveling ministry. And Judas had the money bag. And what was he doing with the bag of money? He would take money out what? As keeper of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was taking money out and putting it into his pocket. Now, how many of you, under the sound of my voice, when the offering plate is passed, would take money out of the offering plate? No, no, nobody would, probably. And, and if you would, come forward, brother or sister, and repent after church, all right? There is forgiveness in the house of the Lord in the name of Jesus. God bless you. Now, none of you would take money out of the offering plate or keep God's money in your pocket out of the offering plate or try and control where God's money is designated to go to. And now that sounds a little bit more within the scope of what's possible for Trent to try and do. To keep for me what God says, bring to him. Bring and not give because it isn't mine to give. It's his already. Who gave Judas the money box anyway? Who was responsible for Jesus' ministry? Jesus was. Now, why on earth would Jesus give the money to Judas? Listen to John 6, 70. Jesus replied, Have not I chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. And he still gave Judas the money back. Why would Jesus do that? I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is a redeemer and lover of mankind. And I read this, and I've read some commentaries on this, and some other guys who have taught this, and I'm in agreement. I think Jesus at times gives us responsibility in the area of our weakness in hopes of redeeming us and helping us grow through that weakness. I'm reminded of, of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation, church family, 
No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can endure it. I don't think the temptation here for Judas is more than what Judas can bear. I think it's absolutely Jesus' attempt at giving him a responsibility in an area of his weakness to try and redeem him and grow him out of it. Jesus knew. Jesus knew exactly what kind of man Judas was. And you know what? He knows exactly what kind of person you are too. And that area of weakness that you're struggling with, and it probably is your wallet. Perhaps God has given you some responsibility in that area in hopes of growing you gracefully, mercifully, through that. What else does selfishness do? Selfishness makes excuses. Selfishness makes excuses. Listen to what Judas said here. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. A preacher was driving one day with a friend of his through a nice area of town. And this friend looks at this big extravagant house and says, ah, that guy ought to sell that. That's just... That's a disgrace. That guy ought to sell that home and give that house to the poor. And the preacher said to his friend, you don't care about the poor. And the friend looks at the preacher and says, I don't. The preacher said, no, if you cared about the poor, you'd take your own house and sell it and give it to the poor. That's the attitude of Judas for us to judgmentally accuse somebody else's style of living or method of giving as a way to inflate our own religiosity or commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the attitude of Judas. That's what the excuses are. In church, this is what this looks like. Oh, so-and-so, they're well off. I know they got this covered. God's, got, God's using them. They, they've got the gift of giving. Or, man, you know, people just don't know. I, I look like I've got enough to give, but, man, I got a new vehicle and this new house. And I got kids. I got medical responsibilities. It just, I'm going to give. I'm just going to do it in my own way. And really what is happening in that is lots of us, I feel like, have not matured in our spiritual life past the point of about a two-year-old. I've got a two-year-old that lives in my house, so right now I am experientially an expert on all things two years old. Okay? The first two words, the first two words we've got a highly verbal two-year-old, which makes life so fun, you know, that he can, that he can look at me and say, you know, Daddy... Why did you leave the lights on in the bedroom? And I'm just looking at him and thinking, dude, you're two years old. Don't, don't you dare confront me, boy. I'm going to put you in your place right now. First two words he learned, no. He learned no first. That was lots of our first word. The second word he learned really in response to me saying no was mine. Mine. Isn't that, isn't that true? You, you, if you've raised a two-year-old, you know that those are probably the two most common words your two-year-old says. I'm saying, bud, give that to your sister. No. Like, don't you tell me no, boy. Mine. All right, but think about this from the perspective of giving. That's the exact same mentality and behavior we demonstrate in our lives and in our approach to giving. The offering plate comes across, and we're not, we, may not, we not, might not be saying it verbally, but at some level the attitude, affect, and behavior is saying it for us. No, mine. This is mine. And I'm not giving it up. And man, I'm telling you, that is so sad to me. Because of the blessing that comes from being obedient in all areas of my life. Remember, friend, likely the number one area where, where your heart is being competed against 
in terms of its allegiance to God is your money. That's where your heart wants to go. And Jesus is saying, man, don't serve after money. Come after me. Now, who else do we read about in, in John chapter 12? I think this is a great example of generosity. This lady's name is Mary of Bethany. This lady's name is Mary of Bethany. I'm going to reread here uh, ver- verses 1 through four, uh, 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining in the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want to talk to you about three levels of, of giving in the Bible. I think Mary of Bethany demonstrates the last, and I'm going to say the most blessed, and that has nothing to do with finance, I think Mary demonstrates the last and the most blessed level of giving, which is sacrificial, painful giving. Okay, But the first giving we talked about last week is the tithe. Where I'm at with the tithe, me personally, for me, I would define tithe as 10%, the first 10% given to the local church undesignated. That's where I'm at with the tithe. I think the tithe predates the law in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel, Abraham and Melchizedek and Jacob. All right, So I'm seeing it separate from the law. I'm seeing lots of clarity in the law, and I'm seeing lots of demonstration of that in the New Testament. There, there are nuances, and there's some disagreement, but I'm telling you, I've studied, I've read. That's where I'm at, unapologetically. That is where I'm at, and that's what I'm teaching to you. But the research says that only 5 to 7%, can you believe that? Five to seven percent of self-identified Christians give ten percent or more to local church. Five to seven percent. Five to seven people out of a hundred are actually giving ten percent or more to the local church. And so we wonder why the biggest competitor for the heart of Christians is money. That's that, there it is right there in the in the research. Okay, so for me, tithe ten percent, first ten percent, undesignated to the local church. That's how I define it. The offering is something above, over and above, for me, the 10%. That's where you, in, that's where you bless uh, missionaries, or God leads you to send money to a public school, in my opinion, or, or a, a, a non-profit radio ministry, or a, another local ministry. For me, that's over and above, okay? But, but then you get to the point of sacrificial giving. This is giving where it hurts. I would venture to say, based on my research and experience with this, over the past few weeks and months trying to study, that there aren't many Christians walking on planet Earth that have actually experienced sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. Let's talk about Mary of Bethany for a minute. She get, and we don't get this part of the story in the text in John 12, but in Mark chapter 14 and verse 5, a, a retelling of the same story says this, This perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. So Mary had saved up uh, the equivalent of a year's worth's wages to purchase this perfume. Now let me ask you, sitting on the sound of my voice, how long would it take you to save a year's salary? How long would it take you to save a year's salary? I'm going to do some fast math for you. Let's say you make $60,000 a year. Let's say you save $400 a month every month for 12 months. You're saving about $5,000 a year. Twelve years later, you've saved up one year's salary. Twelve 
years later, you saved up a year's salary, $60,000. My best estimate would be that it took her somewhere around there to save up that amount of money. 10 years, 15 years, somewhere around there, she's been saving, putting back, diligently waiting, and she buys the perfume at some point. Now think of a little girl. I have a daughter at my house, and she loves pretty stuff. Man, I'm learning so much more about my wife, seeing my daughter, and her grow and just appreciate beauty. And I can imagine, you know, I almost can see my daughter as Mary of Bethany here saving a year to buy perfume. Now, I'm a guy, right? I used to have a beard. I don't anymore, but I did used to. I can't, it doesn't even register to me saving for 10 years to buy perfume for me. But for my little girl, man, I can, I can imagine her buying it. And then she has these real, like, special ways of keeping nice things in special areas of the house. And I think, man, what if about age 15, my daughter was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to start saving money. I want to buy some really nice perfume. Maybe she's saving it for her husband. Maybe she's saving it for some special occasion. I don't know, but I get this vision of Mary of Bethany. When times are tough, going to her room and looking at that perfume or looking at the money she had been saving, thinking, man, at some point I'm going to have it. I can just peek that open a little bit and I can just smell that fragrance. I can put it closed and I can think, man, I worked so hard for that. And, I, and, and as a father of a young little girl, I can so identify with just how much I believe Mary of Bethany was proud of, in a very appropriate way, her efforts at acquiring something that costly over time. And the other part of this story that you wouldn't get unless you've been reading through the book of John or you really know the gospel is what happens right before this in the gospel of John. I'm going to tell you what happens. Jesus raises Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. So this is the picture I get in my mind, and I'm going to ask Mary, and I'm going to ask Jesus one day if this is how it happened. But my vision is Mary walks in the room, and she sees Jesus, and she sees her brother sitting side by side, and she is just overwhelmed. Have you ever just been overwhelmed by God? I just see her being overwhelmed and her saying, God, thank you so much that my brother, who was buried and dead for three days, is sitting right here in this living room with Jesus. And I think she's moved at that point. I think all of a sudden now her preparation meets God's opportunity. I think she's moved to go up to upstairs to the room where she has kept that precious ointment, that, that special perfume. And she's wondered for years, for decades, I think, why she had it, and now she knows, I'm going to anoint the feet of the man who brought my loved one from death back to life. I'm reminded of the words of the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 24. Listen to this. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Friend, here's what I think. I think this is as, as serious as a heart attack. I think that in our world, in our lives, we virtually are never, ever at a point where we have to really intersect with true, authentic sacrifice. I don't think we're hardly ever at that place as Christians. In, in Western, modernized Christianity, I, don't, I think hardly ever are we ever really persecuted to the point of sacrifice. If you go to your job and you proclaim Christianity... 
if you put a, sign, a Christian flag out in front of your house or start door knocking for Jesus, probably the greatest persecution you're going to be met with is indifference. People just apathetic, I've heard you before, I'm good, no problem, just keep rolling. And probably the greatest sacrifice you make is a little tiny bead of sweat you've got to wipe from your brow. I would venture to say that I think probably the only area where Christians in Western, modernized Christianity actually are, are interfaced with sacrifice is in the area of their giving. I think that's probably the only way you or I are ever really going to confront having to sacrifice or give to Jesus until it hurts. But when I read Luke 9.23, let any who want to be my disciple, anybody out there, deny yourself... Take up your cross and follow me. Some of us are so spiritually immature that to deny myself means just turning off the TV or reading my Bible for five minutes or praying before every meal. That's, that's, that's the reality of the immaturity with most westernized Christians. And that's been me for, uh, from time to time. So I'm not casting a stone as much as I'm saying I'm humiliated that this has been true for me at times. That sacrifice for Trent literally probably meant not watching my favorite show a couple of nights a week to read or pray or study. That's sad, and that's right where the enemy wants me. Man, we have got to get to the point where we really understand self-denial and taking up of our crosses if we are really going to be followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would venture to say that it isn't until the point you really experience what giving until it hurts is like that you've experienced the kind of blessings in life that Jesus wants to bestow upon you from being a disciple of His and a son of the Most High God. And the enemy has lulled us to sleep, friend. He has lulled us to sleep. We've gotten cold in our approach to Jesus Christ because there isn't an area of sacrifice that causes pain for Trent, really. It's frustrating to have to turn off my show or read the Bible when I'd rather be doing the ten other things that the enemies put on my mind and distract me with. That's frustrating. But that I fail to see where that is legitimate sacrifice. But man, you start talking to me about my wallet. I'm going to get defensive real quick. Now hang on a second, Trent. Whoa, whoa. But I'm begging you. I'm be- we, as, as ministers in this church... And as people who love you, you're my forever family. I don't have family for 10 hours. If I go to the hospital or, or something happens to my bride, I'm calling some of y'all. You guys are my, are my family. And I, I, I hope you care about me enough to come through in the clutch. And I'm telling you, I care about you enough to say, be, be willing and seeking God's face and, and asking him, God, how do you want me to approach my giving? Are you calling me to give sacrificially? For me, I think that's the only area you're ever going to really truly, authentically experience painful, sacrificial obedience as a Western, modernized Christian. That's what I think. And I think the enemy wants you to sit there and think, no, your theology is wrong, your approach is wrong, you're not seeing this right, you don't know my story. And, and, and I would tell you, you're right. I'm certainly not omniscient, but God is, and I ask you to say the same thing directly to him and see what he has to say in return. This is about the blessed life. I want to tell you, you guys, I, I'm so proud of you guys because there are a lot of you guys that are getting this. A couple of you guys have approached me and said, Trent, I've been praying, seeking God's face, and I'm doing something different. Somebody approached me who, who uh, uh, just gone through a lot in the past little while. 
And at the end of the month, you could just barely slide a piece of paper between where the money ends and the end of the month ends. It's just that close. And this person approached me and said, Trent, I've been so fearful and controlled by money. And through prayer, I just, I just came to an awareness that I need to triple my giving. And I was just blown away, like, I, don't, I just don't even know what, how to respond. And this person said, that's just it. You don't have to. I, I feel like God's already taking care of me. I don't know how he's going to do it or when, but I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. And, I, and she said to me, I want you to know I am so encouraged at finally feeling like I am financially in God's will for me. She said, it's just such an encouragement to me. The enemy wants you to sit back there and hold back and deeply entrench yourself in the view you already hold. And I'm asking you, step out. Live Luke 9.23. Deny yourself. Depend on Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and follow him. You, you were the prodigal son once. And he saved you. How could you not be moved with the same compassion to worship and glorify Jesus as Mary of Bethany was? at seeing her brother that day eating with Jesus. We're going to sing the verse of a song. I'm going to pray, and, and then we're going to sing a verse of a song. If you have a need in your life, if, if you need to be baptized into Christ, we want to pray with you and encourage you. We love you. I pray this blessed you. Let's bow in prayer right now. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings in our life. God, thank you so much for transforming us into the image of your son day to day. And God, I really believe that right now this is where our church is at, that you are calling us into a, a time of sacrifice and dependence on you. Help us step out of our lives that we've grown so complacent and comfortable in and get dependent and obedient to you. God, I pray that any here who have a need would take today and come forward. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.